Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris. We're going to get right to it today. I have uh, a video that someone sent me, a dear brother on Facebook actually sent this to me. And uh, I should probably plug his stuff. I, I've never done that before, I don't think. But uh, he sends me things all the time. He actually, uh, he's, he's an elderly man and he's written so many good, just really wise things. Uh, has a very interesting life. He sent me his life story. His name is Lambert Dolphin. Lambert Dolphin. You can go to ldolphin.org to find his writings. And you may just want to f- go there and, and look at some of the things he said because I, I think he just has such so many good, wise things to say from a life of experiences. But, uh, but he sent me something that I thought was super interesting. And it's, uh, it's, it's a Tim Keller speech that I have never seen. Now, if you want to know more about Tim Keller, my book, Christianity, and no, sorry, <laughs> Social Justice Goes to Church, the first one about social justice. Social Justice Goes to Church, New Left and Modern American Evangelicalism. I talk about Tim Keller in a whole section. And I, and I read and listened to so many things. Well, this, though, I didn't see because, well, it was a private link. And so May 2nd, 2019, this is at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. And most of the stuff that he says, I've heard versions of this before, but he, he says a lot of them all in the same talk. And I just want to listen in with you because I think it explains so much. Uh, I didn't, wasn't expecting to focus this much on Tim Keller this week, but I, I think, hey, as long as I'm doing it, I'll, I'll do a bunch of it. <laughs> and people, people have been helped by it, and I see that people are being helped by it. So I think there's some really actually super good things. Sometimes you listen to like Keller and you think like, oh man, like this, there's so much to like. Now, sometimes there's really not much to like on some of his things he said. I'm like, I really don't like that. But sometimes you just, you empathize. This is one of those things I actually empathize with. And I was listening and I was like, actually, I like a lot of the things he's saying. But then I think he reveals, now this isn't a social justice thing, really, but he reveals, I think, why he leans in that direction. Why, why, the whole kind of behind his thinking, we already talked about 2008, his book, The Prodigal God. We talked about how he he has this whole strategy of like, he wants to attract really, really what amounts to the worldly people and then detract the uh, Bible-believing religious right type folks. But, uh, and, and I, you can go back to the videos, I talk about all this, but in this one, I think it got, it's a step even behind that. Like, why, why does he want to attract those people? Like, why, what's his main purpose here? And one of them thing is, and I think this is where a lot of people have respect for Keller, is he seems to genuinely want Christianity. Now, maybe it's, it's not, sometimes it's not, in my mind, the really biblical Christianity. It's a type of Christianity, but he wants to massage things to, because he wants to preserve Christianity. He wants, he wants it to, to remain, and, and he sees all these threats that are against it, and that to navigate this, like the religious right's done a really bad job of it, and he wants to do a better job. And and so the, anyway, this is, I think, um, it says so much about him. So this is a, uh, a talk that he was at. We're going we're gonna to just kind of skip around it. It's only 35 minutes, but it's THC Gala Keynote Tim Keller, which is at Dallas Theological Seminary. I became a Christian at my college. Uh, not too, and I knew people who just packed up their bags and went looking. So these are introductory remarks. We're going to skip forward a little bit here. Uh, this is not a sermon. This is a talk. Sermons, you should preach your, your certainties, not your doubts. Uh, but uh, when you ask me to come here, I'm going to tell you some things that I'm not totally sure of. As a matter of fact, some of my, uh, some of my staff from Redeemer City to City, uh, having heard me talk about this subject before, are going to say, hey, some of that's changed since October. 
And the answer is, yeah, because I'm not totally sure. But I'll just, I'd like to give you the broad out. Now, this is attractive. I think this is why Jordan Peterson is attracted to some people, too. Part of the reason is he, he's admitting weakness. He's admitting, yeah, you know, I don't have all the answers. And people that are unwilling to do that, uh, you know, we don't tend, they're arrogant. We don't tend to like them. And I don't have all the answers. But Tim Keller, Tim Keller often wants to explain himself and, like, he, he doesn't seem to accept uh, some of the critiques about him that seem, in my mind, to be legitimate. But there is something about him that I, I don't always see with some of the other evangelicals. He doesn't come across to me, Tim Keller, as someone who uh, thinks he has every answer for everything. Now, I'm not saying he's not arrogant, but I'm saying like he, he doesn't his arrogance doesn't approach what, in my mind, I see in someone like an Al Mohler or any of these Southern Baptist uh, professors that seem to not want to ever admit they do anything wrong ever. And maybe they might make a general statement, but they can't ever specifically admit anything. Like th this is, um, th this is just. There's a moment of kind of uh, some some realness, if I can say that, some genuineness, uh, some some just uh, being open. And uh, he's letting people in a little bit to like what he's really thinking that he doesn't have all the answers. And so there, there's, a, there's a little pinch of, of humility here, but I, I think there's arrogance that comes in later in this, but, but there's a pinch of humility though that just, you like that, and I like that. So I uh, just wanted to note that. Outlines, or maybe what I really wanna do is just tell you how to ask the right questions. Vulnerability, that's the word I was looking for, vulnerability. So anyway. Because many years ago, one of my Bible teachers told me that you, the Bible's true, absolutely the word of God, but you only get out of it answers to the questions you're asking it. So for example, uh, for, for centuries we've asked, who is God? You go to the Bible and you find out. Who is Jesus Christ? You go to the Bible and find out. How do we lead the church in the first post-Christian society in history? Well, I don't think we've been asking that question very Re until very recently. So we have a lot to learn as we go to the Bible and say, ask that question. So in some ways, I'm going to give you maybe the right questions to ask rather than the right answers. But here's, here we go. Let me say, in a nutshell, what is the context? What time is it? Then secondly, what are the challenges to the church? And then thirdly, I'll give you five things I think the church is going to have to accomplish to meet the challenges, though I don't know how. One is, what time is it? What is our time and context? Throughout history, all cultures believed that truth was something outside, out there. Truth, capital T, was something out there. And in here, we had feelings, just feelings. So when you found out what the truth was, you brought your feelings in line with it. So if the truth is, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I would, I, my feeling is I'd like to commit adultery, then I bring my feelings in line with the truth. No. If uh, the truth is you should be willing to fight for your country, and my feelings are I'm scared to do that, then I bring my, you know, my, uh, my feelings in line with the truth. So every culture always said the truth is out there, feelings are in here. We are the first culture in the history of the world in which we are being told, no, truth is in here. And outside are nothing but culturally constructed feelings. You find truth inside. 
You go inside to find truth, and then you come out and you tell everybody, you have to accommodate me because I found the truth. I, this is who I am. This is what's right or wrong for me. There's never been a culture in history like that. It's the complete reverse. Or another way to put it is, if you would go as a Christian missionary to a Hindu or a Muslim or a Confucianist or to, or to an animist or any other place, there at least was some agreement, and that is the truth was out here. We would, we would argue on what the truth was. Uh, we would argue about it. But there was some concept that the meaning of life was to be good. <laughs> the meaning of life was to, uh, was to align yourself with that truth or that sacred order. Now, we all disagreed on what the sacred order was. We all disagreed on what the divine, the transcendent was. But at least we all said, yes, the, the meaning of life is to, is to sublimate your selfish desires and to uh, align with the truth. We live in the first culture in the history of the world that says exactly the opposite. They say the problem with this world is telling people they need to be saved, telling people they need to align with the truth. The solution, what will make the world is, is great, is if every single person is free to, to define right and wrong for themselves and to live as he or she seeks to live. It's the opposite. In the past, every culture has always said the problem is the selfish, autonomous individual, and the answer is connect with the truth. We live in the first culture that says the, the answer to our problems is the autonomous individual. And therefore, if you tell an autonomous individual there's a truth that you need to... All right, I'm going to stop it there because he's kind of getting a little repetitive. But uh, the point I want to make here is that he's identifying what I would consider to be a legitimate problem. Uh, this would be a problem I would think someone would talk about maybe in 2010, 2015. Uh, this is in 2019 he said this. So this is right before everything that happened in 2020. And I wonder if he would give the same speech now, uh, knowing that... We do have what the elites would uh, determine to be a capital T type truth. Uh, these statues are racist. This treatment is forbidden. You must take this uh, experimental medication. Uh, you must shut down your business. Uh, your church is not allowed to be opened. Uh, you need to comply with our guidelines. Uh, this... Um, I don't know. It just between the BLM narrative and the the anti uh, or I guess COVID, I don't know what you want to call it, the big pharma narrative. Uh, there there does seem to be. Uh, here's how you love your neighbor. Here's how you uh, comply, and uh, you here's where you line up with the truth. They they are the ones who determine the truth. But it's not God. It's not some transcendent standard. It's a deification of man. And that's certainly nothing really new. And, you know, Keller's saying, well, this whole postmodern project is something very new. And yeah, in some ways it's, it is, but in some ways, no. I mean, like the first culture. I mean, what about Book of Judges? Every man does what is right in his own eyes. It was chaos. You know, that's what Keller's talking about. But right now we're, we're, we're not really dealing with that. That That's all led to the postmodernism of today is, is more of the standpoint theory of the, the social location. And there's a hierarchy of knowledge and, so it's it's a shift in who makes the determinations. It's not transcendent uh, being. It's not God. It's man. So man, man, as he's constructed himself in the state, and the state will determine. So that's actually, I think, more of the challenge uh, is statism. What do we? How do you 
deal with that. And the state gives you a barrier by, or, or a, a, a region of your life in which you can operate. That you have certain things that, yeah, you can go live the, any way you want. No one should question how you want to live. But it's within parameters. As soon as you want to take the mask off, right, or you don't want to get the jab in, in areas in which the state has control, then you are targeted for elimination and cancellation. So uh, I don't know if I agree with the assessment, but I think it, it's like as far as like where we're at right now, but I do agree there's some legitimate problems he's talking about because there are, you know, there is a big space for, it's kind of like uh, I heard the quote once that the, the left wants you to have the freedoms that you can exercise in an eight by 10 jail cell. <laughs> and the right, the right, the freedoms the right wants you to have, you can't exercise in a jail cell. So I, I agree. Like there's still problems with it. You know, someone can do whatever they want sexually, apparently. And even Fauci was saying, well, you know, wear a mask while you, you know, are swapping fluid uh, between each other in that way. It's, it's just amazing. You just, you know, you might want to make sure whoever you're, you're sleeping with uh, has a COVID check to see if they don't have it. Like it's, it's just crazy because you want to preserve that sexual freedom, but it's not like they give that freedom in every area. You don't have medical freedom. So anyway, Tim Keller, though, the point, whole point, trying to approach a real problem, and he's saying, I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is exactly, but here's my way of thinking about it. We're going to skip ahead a little bit. Let me go to, let me see if this is the area in which I wanted to go. We're going to have to do if we're going to address these challenges. They're pretty big. The first one is, I guess I'll just say it's the evangelism challenge. This shouldn't surprise you, but let me get specific. I, I, uh, statistics like this are... You have to take them all with a grain of salt, and yet uh, if you have enough people doing these kinds of studies, you start to at least be able to say round numbers. At least two-thirds of all churches in America are declining, and another 15 to 20 percent are plateaued. This is, every generation that comes along has a higher and higher percentage of people who say no religious preference, agnostic, atheist, surely you know that. Uh, the, the youngest generation, Gen Z, for example, I, or whatever they're going to finally call them, you know, the, the, the various marketers and sociologists are arguing, saying, no, my, they, they want their label to stick, and then they can say, I came up with that label. I'll call them Gen Z. These are, these are uh, young people under the age of 21. You know, generally, if you go through baby boomers and even Gen X people, and you say, how many of you are atheists? They'll usually get 3 or 4%. You get to Gen Z, it's 14%. Uh, some of you may know, if you ask them, are you gay or lesbian or transgender, uh, traditionally it's been 3 or 4%, and the uh, Gen Z is like 12 to 14%. And so you, you see something coming, do you? <laughs> What's coming in America is Europe. And the kind of, uh, the kind of deep secularism and post-Christianity that you have over there. But let me actually get even... So he's absolutely right about some of these problems. He's identifying some of these are going to be challenges. He's right about this, right? And this is where I think we are all like, yeah, nodding our heads. Absolutely. So how does he deal with it? And a little more specific about the, uh, the challenge to evangelism. Let's use the term Christendom. Christendom was... Okay, so he goes through this whole thing about Christianity, and he says that it used to be, you know, people, you could invite them to church, they would come, that's not going to be the case anymore. Right, we got it, more secular. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, I think, here. And you believe in moral absolutes. The average evangelistic presentation 
basically assumes, it, it, in a sense, it, it sits in there. What do I mean by that? Well, here's how you do it. You say, uh, you believe in God, and you know that when you die, um, uh, you want to be all right. You want to be sure that you would go to be with God and with your loved ones. But you also know you're supposed to be a good person, but you're not really good enough. You know deep in your heart you have not lived up to moral standards. You haven't lived up even to your own moral standards. So how can you be sure when you die you go to heaven? I can show you how. Uh, uh, Jesus Christ died for your sins. He paid that penalty. And if you believe in him, then you can be sure that when you die, you go to heaven. I mean, this is evangelism explosion. This is steps, with, you know, steps to God. I mean, it's all the, all the evangelistic uh, presentations I've ever heard in my whole life as a minister. They always assume the furniture. But what if, none of the, what if you go into the room of that person's belief system and there is no furniture? There's nothing to sit in. They don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in moral absolutes at all. They define truth themselves. Now what do you do? And increasingly, we're going to have to, we're going to, have to answer that question. What do you do now? They won't come to church. Why would they come to church? It would be a social cost to come to church. And if they did come to church, they wouldn't understand the sermon. They couldn't because they don't have the furniture that the sermon assumes in most cases. What are we going to do? We need a new mission paradigm. For a po we need a way of doing evangelism for a post-Christian culture. And Leslie Newbigin pointed out, and he was a missionary to India for years, and when he retired and came back to the United Kingdom, he realized it is easier to figure out how to evangelize a pre-Christian culture, which still has, to a great degree, that furniture. Still think that there is something besides this world. Still believe in an afterlife. Still believe in moral truth. It is, he, he said, the biggest challenge that the Christian church has had in centuries now is how do you reach post-Christians? How do you evangelize post-Christians? That's the first challenge. Second challenge, how do you do formation? How do you really form kids, let's say, or people as Christians in this? All right, this whole point is, is that they're going to be catechized into the postmodern paradigm, and so we need to kind of uh, have our this is the new city catechism this is the catechism he, he says that we need to we, we need to try to figure out a way to to keep kids from um thinking this way now there's so much to, to love about this i i want to say that you know for for people who think that everything i say about tim keller or any of these social justice guys I, I just disagree with everything it's all bad it's not all bad there's actually he's saying some good points here but the the question is how does he rise to meet these challenges and so I think this is one of the keys to understanding him is what he just said about we need a new evangelism paradigm. I think this is what drives him. He's trying to work on a problem he sees. And I think so many of his books are about this. He's working on oops, he's working on a problem. And uh, my camera just died, but I'm you can still hear me. So I'm going to just continue the podcast this way. Uh, he's working on a problem. And the, the problem is that uh, things are becoming more secular, more postmodern, and and what do you do about that? How do you, how does the church rise to meet it? The old way of doing evangelism isn't going to work, and so I think what I've seen Keller actually do, though, and he doesn't always he doesn't explicitly like say this necessarily, but what I've seen him do is he he, he soft pedals some of the things the world doesn't like, and then creates kind of opens up categories in Christianity for things the world does like to try to make it more palatable. That's what I've seen in, in Keller so often. 
but he's, uh, you know, in this talk, he seems open to ideas. You know, how, how do we do this? And, and I, my suggestion is we don't stop, like, we, we do what the apostles did. We have a template. We have the Bible. Uh, we have what Paul did at Mars Hill. You go to these pagan cultures, even if they're, you know, he, Tim Keller wants to say it's so unique. It's so different. Well, yeah, there's certain, you know, we have technology. We have certain things that are different, but people aren't different. People always have, they have pride. They, they sin. Uh, they have the same problem. They, they, the same solution exists. And so we, we just have to preach, you know, you violated God's law. You have a conscience. They can't program that all out of you. They can certainly try to fine tune it and change it, but you still have that. And, and so my suggestion is we, we, we go and we get persecuted. And just like the early church, uh, we, the persecution may, uh, involve, the exam our examples being used to save people as they see the power of God in our lives as we're persecuted. That's one way. Uh, there might be some political friction. There might, there may even be a war who knows what happens. Uh, and, and there, there may be an attempt to try to, in some of these States that are not going to go along as much with the po postmodern secular project, they try to carve out their, their own space of freedom for Christians to operate. I don't know, but, for Tim Keller, like he's he never, as far as I know, has ever received any solution like that. He he already doesn't talk about, hey, maybe the Christians should kind of, uh, we 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 should look for some political remedies where we can secede or nullify or, you know, have a have a place that we carve out for Christians to live and operate, and then from that that mothership, if you will, we go and from that base camp we go and we we evangelize. He doesn't really talk about that. He doesn't talk about like. Uh, you know, maybe um, what we ought to do is just be bold and say with unequivocally, this is, you, you, you will die in your sin and go to hell without Jesus Christ. Here I can tell you what Christ has done, and here's the gospel. Uh, Jesus Christ has taken the sins of those who would believe in him. He's the perfect lamb, unblemished, never did anything wrong in his life. His life is in exchange for your, your, um, his, his, his righteousness is exchanged for your righteousness. Uh, when you repent and put your trust in Jesus Christ. And, and the thing is that would require just believing, you know what? The spirit of God's going to honor the message. And that's what I don't see in this. I don't see that faith. I don't see it's, it's all, I'm not saying you shouldn't strategize at all, but it's all like, oh, the church is going to have to go to the drawing board to come up with something completely new. The church, well, we already have a book. That's the thing. And, and I don't want you to miss that. Like that's, there's answers to these questions. And I think he's bringing up some legitimate points, but like we're on solid ground still. Okay. So what, so what if 15% of the next generation are homosexual? So what if most of them are going to be atheists or secularists? Yeah, that's really bad in some ways. It's going to be, have great political ramifications, great societal ramifications. What do we do? Well, we keep doing what God told us to do before he, before Jesus left the earth. He gave us a commission. We're going to do it. And we have models. We have stories in the Bible that show us how to do it. And we have a Holy Spirit that says he'll honor that. So uh, that's the, that should be the encouragement is, you know, it's going to be a rough ride. We'll get through it. But that's not really what we see here. So I'm going to skip ahead a little more here. Well, culture, there's a cultural economy. And what James would say is Christians have got to form an alternate cultural economy. Uh, in his book, uh, To Change the World, he points out that there's three approaches to, uh, uh, that he, he, there's three approaches to how Christians should relate to culture that he thinks are wrong. He talks about purity from, let's stay out. 
He talks about relevant to, let's try to make ourselves as much like the cultures of people like us. He talks about defensive against, that's the hostile, angry, let's take it over. And instead of any one of those three, he says faithful presence. Christians, which is what the Hendricks Center is about, by the way, which is being thoughtful. How do you train Christians to be thoughtful and distinctly Christian and not over-assimilate, but also not withdraw? but get right into the entire cultural economy and create an alternate Christian cultural economy in this country. So you've got people in the media, you've got people in the arts, you've got people in the, in the academy doing this. Number four, the fourth thing we're gonna to have to do is we're gonna to have to reclaim the early, um, uh, the early church social project. Now the term social project I get from Larry Hurtado, who in his book, uh, destroyer of the gods is looking at the early church and he says the early church was marked by five things which were category defying then and they're category defying now. He says they were the first multi-ethnic religion. Secondly, they were committed to the poor. Thirdly, they never retaliated. If you killed them, they didn't come and kill you. Fourthly, they were pro-life. They were against infanticide and abortion. And fifthly, they were a sexual counterculture because they said sex is only between a man and a woman in marriage. And Larry Hurtado hints at what I'm gonna say right out here. Look at those five things. Commitment to racial diversity, commitment to justice for the poor, commitment to civility and peacemaking and forgiveness and reconciliation, pro-life, traditional sexual values. The first two sound democratic, the last two sound like Republican, and the middle one doesn't sound like anybody. <laughs> Civility, remember that one? So this is interesting. This is, this is where he gets, or one of the things that has at least bolstered his view, that Christianity is not of the right, it's not of the left, it's something else altogether, and we need to recapture this. This is part of forming this alternative Christian culture of some kind that is going to help help it survive and flourish or at least survive in, in the coming paradigm of secularism. And so, uh, so, so the thing is like, he, he's making some jumps here, like uh, commitment to diversity. It's not like they had a commitment to diversity. They had a commitment to the Lord and the Lord called people from diverse places. It wasn't like they put that in their, uh, their writings as, as the, you know, this is, you know, one of the chief things we're about, or this is fundamental to who we are, that we, we put that out in front as something that, that we are. No, it, it was more just, we, our community is based around something other than our nationality. So you can have Romans and you can have Jews. And, and, and so it's not like today's diversity, which is uh, an end in and of itself, right? Uh, it's it's something that uh, you're striving to achieve as a goal. That wasn't the early church, okay? Um, justice for the poor. Well, you, they they committed charity. They engaged in charity. Well, that's not ex anything close to what the left is doing today in stealing from some people and giving to others. Not even close. But Tim Keller makes these, uh, he attaches them to those things and says, well, that's like what the left is today. That's just not true. Um, and yes, they were pro-life and they were pro-traditional you know, traditional ethics uh, when it comes to sexuality. So um, th this is where I think Tim Keller is, he's trying to 
create an attachment between the early church and today's progressives that just does not exist. It's not there. That dog don't hunt, but that's what he's trying to do desperately and to appeal to both sides. Now he goes on and he talks about, I'm not going to play it because of the sake of time, but he talks about his whole thing about how the right is, they're, you know, they're secular and the left is secular and one's idolizing one thing, one's idolizing another thing and Christians cannot be attached to either one. We have to transcend this and so that's going to be part of how you know, we navigate this. And the problem is that some Christians are listening to political conservatives and some are listening to political liberals. And that's just dividing the church up. That's that's a horrible thing. Rather than, and this is, I think, an ethical problem. This isn't like a, uh, right now, we're not talking about like a, a quote unquote, some, something that's directly related to the gospel. We're talking about an ethical, because a problem in Christian ethics where Keller is misunderstanding the early church or misunderstanding modern society, either way, and modern progressive uh, ideas in society, and he's conflating them. And and then he wants uh, Christians to be able to uh, value the these progressive things and these, these sort of conservative things, but not be secular and not idolize uh, blood and soil on the one end, and then the state and the all-powerful state, I guess, on the other end. And um, and so it's this third option that we're, we're, we're just so detached. We're not of the world. And I think one of the things with this that, that does bother me is that if you're going to try to reach the world, uh, you have to go where they are. You have to, um, you have to be in the highways and the byways. And I think Keller wouldn't have a problem with that, but you're, when you have the freedom to operate, which Christians still do in the Republican Party, I don't know that they do in the Democrat Party, except maybe in some very special places on the local level, because you certainly cannot take the Democratic Party platform and put your name on that and say, I agree with that. There's no way. Uh, but in the Republican Party, there's still a window of opportunity there that Christians can actually operate and gain position and gain influence. And to say that, to kind of rain on that parade, uh, that... Well, you know, you have your your, your right wingers are they're they're idolizing something. I, I, you know, Tim Keller might even say that you can get involved with these parties, but but I'm saying the effect of his teaching though here is raining on that parade. It's like, oh man, both sides are bad. Uh, whew, I'm I'm in this kind of middle ground. I don't even know what to do. Um, and the, and cl very clearly, uh, the Republican Party and the conservative party in my state and the conservative movement in general is. That Christians have a seat at the table. They uphold public morality. And it's not like the progressives are upholding any kind of public morality. Stealing and um, and pursuing some kind of quota, diversity quota, are not what the early church was about. Those are actually bad things. And Keller wants to make those out to be good. And this is all part, remember the context of this whole thing, this is all part of we have this looming problem of secularization and we need to somehow do something to combat that and fix that. And I don't have all the answers, but here's something that we should do. Create an alternative Christian culture that's neither left nor right, but just Christian. And and we've seen that with TGC. We've just seen that throughout like evangelicalism in general and the elite circles. That's exactly what they believe, that we're just this other thing. We can't really endorse either side. We uh, we have to be something that's really politically uh just inconsequential. Just it takes any voice the Christians had, like the religious right had an influence on the Republican Party. The Republican Party wouldn't win without religious conservatives, Christian conservatives. Uh, that it takes that away, and it takes out the conscience of the country, in my mind. Um, 
And it's not like Tim Keller is trying to create this third party necessarily. Now, maybe he is. He was on the AND campaign for a little while as an advisor, and they're not a party, but that's kind of where they want to go, Christianity and social justice. And they kind of adopt this platform. But but the effect of what he's teaching is that Christians just kind of lose their influence uh, in, the, in the politics. And we need to be salt and light, even in that arena. So I just thought this was an interesting video. Uh, THC Gala keynote, Tim Keller, May 2nd, 2019. And it was sent to me, like I said, by Lambert Dolphin. And uh, he said, hey, this, this seems to explain Tim Keller. And I think it does. I think that's behind what I read from the 2008 book, Prod Prodigal God. Like this is part of the reason he wants to try to attract people who are on the left and who are more secularized and more worldly and wants, he wants to change the image of the church. Why does he want to do that though? To survive something that's coming, that he knows is coming and something that we're even in to some extent, but something that's going to get a lot worse. He wants the church to be able to ride that storm out. And so this is his way of thinking that he can help the church uh, be stronger. And in, in actuality, what he's doing, though, is he's weakening the church's influence. Uh, he's weakening their ability to be salt and light in politics. He's uh, misunderstanding the ethic of the early church. Uh, he's um, he, he's ha he, You have to compromise to kind of get to this position. And it's uh, the long and short of it, though, to me, the big thing is there's really not a faith here that God and the Holy Spirit in particular uh, can move. Just using this, telling the old, old story of Jesus and his love, that, that we have to do something really creative in, in order to uh, maybe change, change the whole strategy, change the whole way we do it, rather than just doing it kind of the old way and just letting the Spirit move. And so that's, that's the big thing. There's no encouragement in that. And when you see people saved who walked in darkness because the Lord changed their heart and drew them to himself. That's something that uh, is a miracle. It's not something you can, you can't strategize or create a situation in which uh, we're going to win because we got the right plan. Not going to happen. And you have to trust God. You have to cry out to God. And, and then, yeah, you do, you do some level of, I mean, you don't want to be foolish, but you want to try to in the context, and we are at right now, we want to be as faithful as we can to doing what Jesus and the apostles did. That's really it. That's what you got to do. They're the example. And so we have a strategy already. All right, that's the podcast today. Hope that was helpful for many of you. God bless. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.